Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt, and with me today I have Eric. Good morning. And I have Tracy. Good morning. And we have Karen. Good morning, everyone. So this morning, I want to start off just by sharing a bit of news with our listeners. Of course, we all here know, but my wife has been going through chemotherapy for uh, breast cancer treatments here since, well, she had surgery in October. And uh, this week, she had her last chemo session. And so that's a big bit of news in this household. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I know a lot of people go through different health issues and then, you know, compounding things with the with the pandemic going on and, and stuff. It's been well, it's been a hoot and a half. So but we're good. We're super happy to be over that part of the deal and uh, ready to move on. We're, we're not out of the woods yet because there's still radiation treatments. And then after that, she'll be on some sort of medication called tamoxifen for it could be it could be upwards of 10 years, they said. So, but we don't, we won't know that for sure. But anyway, we're through one, one part of the ordeal and, uh, and I think the worst of it is behind. So that is awesome. Um, so we are in Genesis chapter 44 this week to start, and we are going to finish the book of Genesis this week. Now, our listeners, you might recall we had started into the story of Joseph, and it's one of the oh, one of the greater stories of the Bible. Where I, I think it's a fairly popular story. We don't get as many great movies and things about it as we do, like Moses and you know, all the stories of Jesus. But the story of Joseph is such a catalyst for what happens to the nation of Israel coming up. Um, this is really it's all about how they end up there. So uh, last week we had kind of finished off with um, the brothers had come back to Egypt. They were there for the second time to buy food from Pharaoh because uh, there was a huge famine. There had been, uh, there was, it was predicted there would be a famine for seven years after a after a season of plenty for seven years. So now they're into, I think it's about year two of the famine, and the uh, ten brothers, the sons of Jacob, had come back to Egypt uh, for round two, and Joseph had been kind of testing the waters with them, seeing where things were going to go, because they didn't know that Joseph was, A, still alive, or and definitely, B, didn't know that he was in the position he was, as essentially the governor of all of Egypt. He'd been put over uh, everything after his ordeals in Potiphar's house and being in prison. And so now he is here, just right in front of his brothers. They don't know who it's him, and he's kind of seeing how they're going to react to things. Now, the last time that he sent them back, he had put all the money back in their sacks, and they didn't realize it until they got down the roads a ways. Well, here in 44, he does a similar thing. This time, they had brought the youngest brother, Benjamin, who was Joseph's full brother. He was the only other son of... I, I always get Rebecca and Rachel. Rachel. Yeah, I always get those two messed up. He was the only other full brother of Joseph being Rachel's son. And so Joseph sends them on their way with food again. Once again, he puts all the money back in their bags. 
but this time he ups the ante a little bit and puts his personal cup into Benjamin's sack to uh, be later, quote-unquote, found by uh, his steward. Now, first of all, I'm a little surprised that the brothers didn't get out of town and check their sacks just to make sure that something didn't happen the same as the, as the last time. Oh, really? But, them before they leave. Yeah. They just take a peek. Hey. But they get down the road, and Joseph sends his steward after them to to find this cup that he knows, of course, fully well, knows it's there. And the guy goes through all the brothers' sacks, and wouldn't you know it, he gets to the youngest the one of Benjamin, the one that they were the most eager to protect on this trip. And uh, before they, well, (laughs) before it's found, they make a hasty promise. And that promise is with whomever of your servants it is found, let him die. And we also will be my Lord's slaves. So they just assumed they knew what was going on. And said, no, there's no way any of us took your cup. And I'm sure they're probably thinking we wouldn't even have an opportunity to get it, you know, although they had been in Joseph's house. But a hasty promise like that, those that might be worth talking about, because this isn't the only time we're ever going to hear about a hasty promise in the Bible. Uh, the other one I can think of, if I'm remembering, is um, is it Jephthah? Yeah. Who, yeah. Who makes a I don't remember the exact situation but he promises to God that when he gets back home the very first thing that he sees coming out of his home he will sacrifice to God and it ends up being his daughter there's all kinds of interpretations of what happens but um the, you know the gist of it is that he has to give up his daughter well these guys they're like hey you can kill whoever's found whoever finds this thing and uh it's, well I guess that was a little similar to when Rebecca was hiding the idols of Laban and was it and uh, you know it was promised to you know whoever you find you can take them you can kill them I would I would think that just the idea of knowing that someone is coming and looking for a particular thing and they're coming to you looking for it it might be worthwhile to hold off on making too hasty of of uh, an oath or a promise especially when you <laughs> promise it they can have somebody's life. What do you what do you guys think about the situation? I think this is just a proclamation of innocence. Like, like I, I get what they're saying. And yes, I believe that they were giving a solemn oath. But I, I mean, clearly in the Bible times, they were prone to, you know, strong promises. And there and all it is, is it's just a statement. It's a bold statement of innocence. Like we did not do this. You know, you can kill whoever you find because we're that sure that you're not going to find it. So. You know, it also also stands to reason maybe they took a little bit more time to observe what was going on, how their sacks were being filled. You know, did they kind of watch them throughout the process where they had this false sense of security and, you know, were able to kind of make such a bold promise right away? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think you're both probably right there. It just I still think it's a good warning. Don't. Don't be too hasty to make a claim where you offer up something like that. You know, maybe say, maybe it would have been wiser for them to say, well, let's look. You know, I don't know what's going on. But um, at any rate, 
the cup is found well, in Benjamin's. Go isn't ahead. Isn't there? Isn't there a place in the Bible where it talks about like don't don't make grand oaths about things? Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Mm-hmm. So they the cup is found in quote unquote found. I mean they knew it was there the whole time, or the steward knew it was there the whole time, but finds it in Benjamin's sack. And this is where I think this is where um we're gonna find later when we get through the blessings that Jacob gives to his sons. He gives a he gives us particularly good one to uh, Judah. Judah stands up here, and he he he's keeping his promise to keep Benjamin safe. If you remember, in forty three, he basically said, "I'll take care of him, and if I don't bring him back, then I'll I'll take the blame forever." That was part of what got Jacob to allow them to take Benjamin in the first place. So uh, Judah is really starting to show his his upstanding nature. And as we talked about last week, how all of these brothers, you can start to see that we've seen that their character is starting to change where before they were really down on Joseph, kind of because of his own attitude, but because of all that favoritism shown. Well, here there's no less favoritism shown towards Benjamin from Jacob. Uh, but the brothers are learning to kind of take it in stride and they're, they're standing up for him now because this is, you know, this is their brother. Yeah. We see a real transformation. Um, Judah is, uh, he steps up to the plate here. We see that as he's, it's interesting in verse 16, he offers no excuses, even though he wasn't guilty. He just says basically, Hey, what can I possibly say? Let's just, let's move forward here. Then he, he, he really, really steps up to the plate here. And it's a very interesting thing um, that Judah offers himself as a substitute. He offers himself to basically redeem Benjamin. Um, and his, mm-hmm. heart is, his heart is for others, not only for Benjamin, but for his father. And I asked the question, I wonder if, his, I wonder if Joseph's brothers told his father what really happened. And no, they didn't. Yep. Because we see it in, um, in uh, I think it is 32, no, 28, that, no, that their father still thinks that Joseph was eaten by a wild animal. Yep. Um, and so mm-hmm. uh, Judah is, he's concerned about his father, he's concerned about Benjamin, and he's willing to put himself in that position of a servant or slave or to be killed or whatever it is. And that's a that's a pretty interesting um, thing, and definitely speaks to his character at this point. One thing yeah. I thought was interesting about this whole interaction with the silver, you know, the bags of silver and the silver cup and the sack and everything. When the steward shows up, he says to the brothers, "Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination?" Right now, mm. now, raise your hand if you think that Joseph was using a silver cup for divination. You know, we all know he prayed. He didn't use a silver mm. cup to divine things. Right. But he's creating this image to his brothers, you know, so that the kind of strange things that they've noticed, like the really personal questions that are weirdly accurate and putting them all in order of 
of age at the dinner table, these things that they've noticed, you know, it's sort of feeding into this mystical powers, like the truth is known, you cannot fight it, all right? But Judah's response to that I thought was really, really interesting because this in verse 16 where he says, what can we say to my Lord? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt, all right? They weren't guilty of this thing. This is a bigger guilt that Judah's talking about. Like this has stuck with him all these years. Like I did this bad thing when I was a young man and now it's coming back to me in this way. Like there's a complete, you know, by like mo modern sort of logical thinking, that's a, that's a miss. That's like a total swing and a miss. Like just because you're guilty of this one thing over here does not mean you're guilty of this other thing over here. But here he is owning that. God has uncovered your servant's guilt. So it's, I thought that was kind of interesting. So this is a very, this is a, these, these two societies, even though they do it in different ways, they both really lean on the mystical. And Judah is definitely still carrying a lot of guilt weight. Yeah. 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 Now, isn't Jesus of the line of Judah? Yes. Yeah, I think so. So isn't that a kind of interesting? Judah. Lion, kind of Lion of Judah. Uh -huh. Judah is willing to stand up, be the uh, the substitute for his brother. Can't help seeing a parallel there. Well, in chapter 45, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. Loudly. And it's, you know, it's after it's after the brothers have finally said, we just cannot go back without without Benjamin. There's no way it would kill our father. And and. Joseph, I think he finally, he finally, I guess maybe he decides he's satisfied with the change in his brothers, but he finally decides that he's going to reveal himself to him. And I can, I can only imagine the shock that that must have been on their faces with it. There's, it, it, it couldn't have been a quick, oh, hey, look, it's Joseph. It, it had to have been, you know, some doubt and question. But the real, the real crux of the thing here is when Joseph is like, don't, you know, don't worry about it because he says, God sent me before you to preserve life. <laughs> and later on, he says, um, so now it was not you who sent me here, but God. Yep. Yeah, verse eight. But, you know, what I thought was interesting, though, is he didn't didn't quite let it all go. You know, he started he, you know, told everybody to leave. He cried. They all heard him. And then he said, you know, I'm your brother. And but the first thing I kind of, you know, saw that he mentioned was I'm the one that you sold, you know, like they would forget, but not letting them forget. You know what? You know, I'm Joseph, the one you sold, mm. you know, into slavery. It's like, you know, to me, that was just a little maybe I haven't forgotten as well. Maybe. Yeah. I mean. Forgiveness is an is an interesting thing because we're not, you know, when we're told to for, be forgiving, we're not told that we have to forget. So this is a actually this is a really good example of what forgiveness is. You don't have to forget what's happened. You don't have to forget what's been done to you, but you just don't let it rule you anymore. Yeah, it's we get not, to that big time in um, chapter fifty. Mm -hmm. As it ends, it's one of the most powerful. Um, pictures we're not we're not there yet but this is this is where he says hey look this is part of a bigger plan mm -hmm. and he he acknowledges that he knows that um and i think it's 
fascinating to me that the so much of the rest of the Bible is children of Israel, it's Israel, Israel, Israel. By the time we get to the New Testament, pretty much everybody um, before the book of Acts, with the exception of Jesus, is it's just Israel. Everybody else is a footnote. They're dogs under the table. They're, you know, they're, you can't eat with them. You can't just, the Jews had put themselves on such a pedestal uh, above everyone else that it's just, it's, it's kind of hard to read. And, and, um, and yet it's interesting that in, in 45, eight, so it was not you who sent me here, but God is that God could have preserved just those 70 people in Canaan pretty easily and let the Egyptians die and let, let the Canaanites die. But he didn't. He, he put Joseph there in a position so that at the time is my understanding via history. This is one of the leading powers of the, uh, of, of the middle East anyways. And he, he preserves many, 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 many people, even the people who become later the persecutors of his chosen people. He preserves them. Mm-hmm. He didn't have to do that. He could have come up with a plan, you know, just to get enough grain to see 70 people through a tough time. But he didn't. He cared enough about all these other people to make this happen. You yeah. know, just for oh, just for perspective, I, I did some research on this on this famine that they had these seven years of famine and like, it was bad. It was bad, bad. Like I was reading letters that Egyptians had written to each other during that time. And like, like they're talking about cannibalism, like there's no food. We're eating each other. Like it was Mm. bad. Yeah. So this was a, this was a big intervention. I mean, think about how much of the earth's Le- the, the you know the what we would now call a first world country population would have just been wiped out at that time just because i mean seven years of famine like how do you even how do you you can get through one year if your pantry's full right how do you get through seven so this was yeah this mm-hmm. is a big invention it was well um so joseph invites the entire family of Jacob to come to live to Egypt. And this is where things, this is where things start to take off, uh, for Israel, the Israelites, uh, Pharaoh. I mean, he goes and talks to Pharaoh and Pharaoh actually makes a command with them to take some carts so that they can make the journey easier. So this speaks a lot to Joseph too, that Pharaoh would say, yeah, bring your whole family up here. Of course, you know, would we say 70 people would find out here in I think it's maybe the end of this chapter. It doesn't really matter. Seventy people, not including women and probably servants. So I don't know how many. I think it does include got, the women and kids and stuff. Maybe not the servants. They did a pretty thorough uh, inventory. So I've got a question. Yeah, yeah in, go ahead. In forty-five, eight, it's the latter half. You know, the first part's really cool. So it's not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh. I love that. Now, I've been to a lot of, and I know, Tracy, I want you to weigh in here because our our uh, listeners might not know this, but you're into the Egyptian thing. I am. And I've been to the Egyptian thing at the Denver Museum of History and so on. And, you know, having youth as kings was not uncommon. The Israelites mm-hmm. did this a lot, too. Also, 
I remember I was just shocked at reading that the average lifespan of the Egyptian was like 40 years. I mean, like that was it. Yeah. And so the idea that he could, this, this might not be a metaphor father to Pharaoh. And it, it shed some, I mean, to put perspective on this, when Jacob shows up and he's a hundred and what was he? He was 130 when he shows up, how this must have absolutely blown the minds of these Egyptians. Mm, yeah. Way in there, way in there, Tracy. Yeah. No, I think it's probably absolutely right because they did, you know, often start to be a pharaoh at a young age. They did usually have a, like a visor, somebody that kind of led their decisions. You know, a lot of times if you look, it was, you know, somebody out of the family, maybe a sister or something like that. But, you know, at this point, he probably was up there with pretty much the elder community of of Egypt. So he probably held a, you know, just by the role he had, it was one of like mentorship almost. So, yeah, I think he did. And I think he was making a lot more decisions than we think. Well, and I thought back to that moment when they brought him out of the prison and like, here, we need to talk about Pharaoh's dreams and what they mean. Well, there's going to be seven years and then said, you know, like that whole thing. And then Pharaoh just immediately appoints him. And at, at the time that we read through that, we were kind of like, well, that seems sudden. Like, hey, one day you're a prisoner, next day you're. And yes, he probably had his reputation to go before him and all of that. But if if what I was thinking this exact same thing this week when I was reading through this. It was like, if Pharaoh was young, here comes this older, more experienced man who gives you some solid advice. Advice. It's going to make perfect sense to be like, okay, you do it. it. It's your idea. Like, you do it. Tell me what to do next. And too, you know, age was looked at as, as being old and wise, you know, and if you think about it, you know, maybe it had something to do with like dietary things. Because right now you're mentioning famine. And them kind of eating each other and, you know, that kind of thing. Because if you look at it, they had so much in a grain store. But are you going to use X amount of pounds where, you know, say the average person ate, you know, I'm just going to throw this out here arbitrarily, but two pounds of grain in, you know, in a, a week or something like that. Well, how much would it, how much grain would it take to feed the animals? Right. You know, so maybe that was one of the things that was quick to go. So you know, once again, no meat, no anything like that, where wasn't possibly customary for Joseph's diet, where he, you know, was sustained on, you know, the simple things, you know, grain, water, that kind of thing, where, you know, they weren't. So, well, I mean, Joseph mm -hmm. lives to a ripe old age, even living in Egypt. Mm -hmm. Um, and I know that I know that uh, speaking of the Egyptians, one of the things that contributed to my understanding from a from a modern viewpoint of one of the things that contributed to a, a shorter lifespan was this, you know, this lead based eye paint that they wore and different things like that. They're like there were all kinds of different contributing factors. But Joseph, he's Hebrew by birth, but he lived there for most of his life and he lives for quite a while. But I thought, but when, you know, we were talking about Jacob's age, I, I noticed that too, because he shows up and he's like, well, I'm 130. And then Jacob blesses Pharaoh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He yeah. Takes the, older, something. the older man role and like, be well, my child. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that was an excellent question, Eric, because I hadn't really considered that. And of course, there's no reason that not to. I mean, what? I mean, the most famous Pharaoh that we can think of right now is Tutankhamun, right? Mm -hmm. Right. And he how old did he live to be? I mean, I remember hearing 
things like 14, but I think he lived longer than that. But didn't he take the throne at like 14, they said? Or? Yeah, I think he was 13 when he took the throne and then he lived into what, his 30s or something like that, if I remember correctly. I don't know. So, I mean, I'm thinking of my youngest son. He turns 13 on Monday. You should get him a throne. <laughs> that kid running a whole country totally makes sense now why he would be like, oh, hey, yeah, you, you that just, you know, talk, you know, told me what my dream was about. This would make sense now. Totally makes more sense in my head now. All right. Well, that was cool. So, yeah, he commands him to go down and get uh, dad and, and, and the family. And um, Joseph shows a little bit of his own favoritism towards his brother when he he gives his brothers all changes of clothes. I thought that was an interesting gift. Here you all go, a change of clothes. But I suppose they probably, I, I would imagine they probably didn't change their clothes very often. But uh, well, this is also two years into a famine. He tells them that. Yeah. There's been a famine for two years and there's going to be five more years. So, mm -hmm. and I know that you have to have healthy animal crops or healthy flax crops in order to weave cloth. Like that's, that's how that is. So mm -hmm. flax, you know, the, the flax, okay, fine. You harvest the heads and you eat that, but then you process the stems and that's where you get linen. So, you know, like mm -hmm. you, you have to either have fiber crops or animal fiber crops in order to make clothes. And if you're two years into a famine, yeah. This is a gift of gold. This is wonderful. Yeah, it's true. Yep. So, yep. So he gives he gives Benjamin a little bit more than everybody else. He gives Benjamin what ten, five changes of clothes five plus changes. three hundred pieces of silver, and um, and then uh, tells him not to argue on the way home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he sends some donkeys and, and and what I took to be some treasure for uh, Jacob and. Uh, Plenty of food for the journey. They get they get down there and they convince Jacob to come back to Egypt. In fact, I think God actually does the convincing because I think maybe there's some little bit out of out of out of order here. Uh, maybe not though. They 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 convince Jacob to come back to Egypt and God no, tells him don't don't worry about it. But it's interesting. He God shows up to Jacob in forty six three. To confirm what he's doing after yes. he's already started moving. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> he's, he doesn't show up before he moves to say, okay, now it's okay to go ahead. I'm going to confirm your faith before you get going. He makes him move first and then confirms it later. On the road. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Literally. So. So this happens, this convincing and stuff, it seems like it happens at Beersheba where they've gone and they've done some sacrifices and they're going to travel to the land of Goshen. So I was curious, I was just looking at the map to see what, just how big of a, a, um, a journey this was. And it looks like it's probably about 150 miles. So we're talking from here, you know, we're up here in Northern Colorado and then down to say, um, Pueblo? Yeah, probably. And these guys are walking that far? So so that is you know, they've made this trip a few times now. So it's not it's not like it's a small undertaking when you're gonna get seventy people. And I I went through and I counted it up and it was pretty much just the brothers and their children. It didn't it didn't include the wives in the oh, count. It, it talked about, you know, these guys were sons of Leah, these guys were sons of Zilpah, mm -hmm. but but they weren't counted in that so it's in fact a thing well it doesn't really matter it was at least 70 people i think it was more than 70 people probably i would guess i'm assuming there was uh servants and stuff involved too so we could probably talk 
about, you know, 150, 200 people, maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, all walking down, uh, walking down to Egypt. Well, the point is, is that when the Israel starts in Egypt, there's, I mean, it says in, in uh, 27 that there were 70. And yeah. Yeah. who that includes and doesn't include, I guess, you know, I'm not certain anyways who that does. But that's a small number compared to what we see in coming up in um, Exodus. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's kind of great. To the yeah, point that's kind of, of a they scared another nation of them taking over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of the point here, because that's why God is saying, don't worry about going to Egypt, because that's where I'm going to make you a great nation. This is maybe the first indication that that part of the promise is going to is going to come true. And God's saying that's where it's going to happen. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I do not want to miss this. Okay. That in verse 21, I've got 20 bucks for anybody who names their two children, Muppum and Huppum. No, no, <laughs> you know, that whole, that whole chapter 46, you could take, you know, I don't hear too many people saying, let's go to, Je- let's go to Genesis 46 to pick the names of our children. So in verses 26 and 27, where it's listing out the people who came from, from Canaan to Egypt in 27, it says with the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Joseph in Egypt. So like they took the trip back with their uncles met grandpa and came down. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, I guess I didn't take that out of it, but it certainly is a possibility. That is kind of cool. Go see grandpa. So when they come back, looking at that, that might have, you know, having um, Jacob's kids, I mean, Joseph's kid children with them along the journey could also have been like their past to get into Egypt and everything else. You know, without any kind of trouble, because oh look, I have the governor's children. My dad's the governor. We're going back to see, you know, back into Egypt during this famine. Because it almost makes us think that maybe the the country was in a little bit of a lockdown due to the famine. Possible having these like ambassadors. Hey, this is my dad's family, and we're coming back into Egypt, and we need, you know, we need passage and safe travels and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, when they come in, they are given the land of Goshen to live in. Uh, and part of this is because them being shepherds, I was able to find out Goshen basically was the only place in the area that had any kind of decent pasture land for that. But there's an interesting thing here. In It talks about how every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Yes. And I was looking in several places trying to figure out why. And I heard a, I, I read a couple of possibilities, but nothing definitive. One of them could have been their diet because they raised their their livestock for food, like for meat, and that a lot of the Egyptians, it seems, maybe were vegetarian, uh, but I did see some indication that they also ate meat, um, but there might have been some religious reasons here because a lot of the Egyptian gods were essentially livestock animals, um, similar to like Hinduism today, they revere cattle. And uh, apparently some of the Egyptian gods were like sheep and, and cattle. Uh, and it might have just been just a xenophobia thing where just because they were kind of foreigners, like, okay, you guys have to go over there. Um, well, I couldn't come shepherd, up with a really a shepherd, good reason. A shepherd isn't automatically a foreigner, though. So, I mean, as far as like all shepherds are an abomination, that doesn't really make sense. Somebody Some has to raise the animals. The there's going to be Egyptians. Yeah. 
So I couldn't come. I couldn't come up with a good reason for that. I don't know, Tracy. Do you have any insight? No, I don't. You know, I was just. I don't know. It's but just. It's interesting, uh, it's interesting. This that the fact, and this is hard. I mean, it's easy just to look at this, but I mean, imagine if you were there, and I put myself in these things that being called an abomination stinks. I mean, that's like, come on. It's like, welcome to our country. You're an abomination. It's like, that's, uh, that's going to be a hard pill to swallow. But hidden in that curse by their countrymen is the blessing in that they get the very best of the land. Yeah. And it's a thing that I, that I forget. It's like, yeah, they were in Egypt and they were held in bondage. They weren't slaves the entire time. Um, but they had the best of the land. It's kind of like here in Colorado, if, if people in Denver were like, oh, you people, you people, are, you suck. You need to go in the mountains and, and take the, all the land around the lakes and the river. <laughs> it's like, okay, sign me up. You yeah. Know? And so it's an interesting thing that in that curse is the blessing of where they get to live for the duration. And that's where they prosper. Mm-hmm. You know, that being said, um, the Egyptians were very close-knit society. So, you know, they called the foreigners Hyksos or like basically foreigners and they weren't allowed, they weren't looked upon nicely there. It was your Egyptian or you were everything else. So, you know, that could be just how they were kind of viewed there initially while Joseph might, I mean, yeah, while Joseph might have taken them in because they were his family. Doesn't mean they were revered like that in the in the community or for the country because they were a very close knit society. It yeah. was very Egyptian or you just weren't up to par. Yeah, and that's interesting that. because I'm thinking back to Hagar and you know she, her low, low, low place in Abraham's household because she was not only a female but she's a slave and she's not only a female slave she's an Egyptian slave. So like this kind of I mean, that sort of us and them mentality, that's pretty much eternal to human nature. And it leads to a whole lot of discrimination in various forms. But yeah, outside of Egypt, it was the exact opposite. So I want to say in 47, we get to where Joseph starts selling everything. Um, uh-huh. um, and he ends up owning essentially everything in the nation because the nation has no other choice really to survive mm-hmm. um and it just it just kind of struck me it's like if if you were in charge of this is the civic government at this time and you owned all of the land and all of the money and all of the animals and all of the people and you're like hey let's do a building project like what could hmm. you not get done yeah, it's kind of mind blowing. It's like you have the resource, everything, everything in the nation and probably a lot of the nations around it belong to the royalty of Egypt at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's no doubt that this came out good for Egypt, especially good for Pharaoh. Uh, and this is the catalyst under which the Israelite nation grows. There's a part of me that says, was this the greatest thing to happen though because like you said the people at this point own nothing i mean nobody owns anything except for pharaoh you know he's got everything at that point you know if you look down at 14 and 15 the money failed yeah 
Yep. It's like, you know, and if you look at any, you know, during those times of like pestilence and war, you could have all the money you have it, that you want, but in essence, it becomes paper. It becomes worth nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a crummy situation. I think Joseph came up with a, a workable solution. Not to make it super political here, but I, I question if it was. I mean, it worked out. It worked out. But for the people, it was kind of stinky that, I mean, they were still able to make enough to, you know, you know he's still saying 20% is going to go to Pharaoh. You guys get the rest for yourselves, um, but you're going to be taxed pretty heavily. And, uh, but at the same time, you don't own anything, nothing you have. Absolutely nothing you have is yours. Well, I think so. I think if you're talking about seven years of famine, I don't I don't think that I don't think that's the time to be looking for an ideal socioeconomic situation. Mm-hmm. Um, I read when I was digging around in <clears throat> history about this this last week, I read some interesting things where right around this time, a series of canals, like little like irrigation ditches, was dug all the way through Egypt, and you know, historians, Bible historians, looking back at that, have this sort of educated guess that now you had, you know, smaller farmers. You had these these people and they needed to get the water from the Nile over during the flooding season. They needed to contain that water and reserve some of it. And they needed to get it way over there to so-and-so's plot of land that they were farming. And it just kind of changed the way the entire nation was structured, including how they managed their crops. I, and mm-hmm. I, I just I thought all of that was so fascinating because there's lots of different ways to run a nation. Long term, they might be good ideas or bad ideas. But when you're looking at, at seven years of, of hard, hard famine, that's a band aid. Like you're not sure. you're not you're not getting idealistic at that point and going, yes, but what about the value of human independence? No, that's not where we're at. We're trying to live. Right. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I just I thought all of that was really, really interesting and from a modern viewpoint, it gets my back up a little bit. Like now the government owns everything. Yeah. The people were grateful. They now had a way to live and they could raise smaller crops and they could manage them on a smaller scale and everybody could just survive. Yeah. Well, I think too, you have the whole Egyptian culture was based on the Nile. So yeah. when the Nile flooded, you know, things were good. It enriched our soils, the whole deal, you know, especially in those lands where the tributaries were, that was their big farming area. So if they didn't have it, yep. they, had, they had nothing. They had to do something else. And I think if you even look back farther in history, you know, there's a big raging debate on, you know, the pyramids and how all those stones were moved from the quarries to where they needed to. You know, and one interesting fact that I, you know, idea that I saw during this or theory is that the Nile would flood so much that it was basically a land of, of water. So they were able to to barge these things over great distances where earlier on they thought they were dragging them, you know, halfway across the desert where in essence they might have just floated them down, you know, a river or a canal or, you know, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So water did play a huge, huge um, place in this culture. So, yeah, a good, you know, a good thing comes out of a really, really difficult situation. Mm-hmm. Um so the uh, this the Israelites, it, it, they really start to take off. We're told that Jacob at this point is 147 years old, mm-hmm. and that the how does it put it? Um, 
Uh, let's see. Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. So they're already starting to take off in this time of, of famine while essentially Egypt is taking care of them because it told us uh, earlier on that their food is being provided for them, too, through all of this. Joseph has had a couple of sons by this time. Uh, which we, I think, well, we, we talked about him. We mentioned him earlier. But Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob wants to bless them. And he essentially adopts them as his own. He he takes them as his his own sons, if I read that right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um which comes into play later when you read the, the 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 of the twelve tribes of Israel, I think those two are included in the twelve tribes, and there's a couple of others that aren't. Joseph isn't and I want to say there's one other that isn't, and I can't remember who right now. But yeah, these two get left out. Yeah. Um, but when Joseph brings them to Jacob to be blessed, he brings them so that Ephraim would go to Jacob's left hand and Manasseh would go to Jacob's right hand. And when Jacob reaches out to bless the boys, he essentially crosses his arm, crosses his hands so that his right hand goes on the younger son and his left hand goes on the older son, which indicates that the younger son here is going to get the greater blessing. And Joseph tries to correct him, and Jacob is having none of it. It's interesting that Jacob, I made a note here, that Jacob does on purpose what he tricked his father into doing. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yep. I do not really understand... Why? And when it gets into 49 and so on with all the blessings and cursings, it's, oh man, it's so far outside of my like cultural understanding as to how that all happens. I don't, I'll admit I don't get it, but I do find it fascinating that Jacob worked so hard to pull this trick on his father and then he does it to Joseph right in front of him. It's just mm-hmm. like, I mean, there it is. I, I don't know what yeah. It means, but. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that is interesting. Now, the blessing itself is kind of interesting, where Jacob says, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. So this is another indication of one of those times when that term angel doesn't refer to what we traditionally think of as an angel. Here, Jacob is literally calling God um an angel so we, we i just i keep pushing this because there's times later on where uh the term angel gets used i think even sometimes for uh for jesus and um we, we kind of need to get that idea out of our head that an angel is is this personification of of a human looking creature with wings you know that it's always a created being that it's always referring to something something else but that sometimes it literally is talking about god and it's not saying that god is what we perceive an angel to be because we've got the wrong idea in our heads about that that term to begin with um but okay let's see um by the way, if we can, I don't know the answer to this. This is just something that I've heard. I've always been curious about. Maybe we can kind of keep an ear open for it. Maybe one of you guys knows the answer. I don't know. But I I thought 
and and I've always been a little unsure of this, but I thought that <clears throat> Joseph was the only one of the 12 sons who was not a tribe. And I thought that the other 11 were, and that Ephraim and Manasseh were considered half tribes. I think you're right. It's kind of like the math works out that way. If Joseph isn't counted and uh, Ephraim and Manasseh are accounted as 0.5 tribes, you end up with 12. <laughs> well, right, right. But like, I, I, I've, I've never kind of known the background of how that came into being or why or how it how it came out in the allocation of land or goods or assets or whatever. I just, that's just kind of a thing that I've always heard and been kind of curious about. I remember hearing of the half tribe of Manasseh, but I don't remember hearing the term half tribe of Ephraim. There's, there's just a lot of interesting stuff going on when it comes to adopting because Joseph, I think it was maybe, maybe in 50, Joseph adopts his grandsons as his sons. And so there's this kind of like this idea of just taking somebody and picking them and saying, I'm choosing you to be an, a um, my son to inherit whatever blessings and this and that and the other. And so that is not an explanation as to why it got to there to Karen's question, because I don't I don't know how what I don't know. I just don't know. But there it is. It shows up here and there. Yeah. So Revelation 7 is where the sealed of Israel are named and they're given their uh and they're done by tribes. So you have the tribe of Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. Joseph. Interesting. Joseph instead of Ephraim? Is that the other one that was missing? Um. Yeah, he wasn't mentioned. And Manasseh was Manasseh mentioned. Yeah, Manasseh was. Yeah. Um, okay, so let me read through the other ones, and you tell me which one's not there. Reuben, uh, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Ishkar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. Dan, Dan, I think is left out. At okay, Revelation. So oh, that that's interesting. Now I want to know why. Well, I don't have the notes here, but when you read those names in Revelation in the order that they're listed, because they're not listed by by um, when they were born like they usually are, when you read those names as they're listed in Revelation and you take the, na the meaning of those names, you essentially get the plan of salvation in a short story form. It's really really fascinating i'll have to share that here sometime so here's the blessing of dan just to skip ahead to see maybe i don't know if this informs what's in revelation this is in uh, 49 uh, 16. 16 dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of israel okay so far so good and then dan shall be a serpent in the way a viper by the path that bites mm -hmm. the horse's heel so that the rider falls backward that didn't sound like a compliment <laughs> I wait for your salvation, O Lord. It's, I don't know what to make of that, but there it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anyway, something maybe we can keep an eye on as we go through this, because as the tribes actually develop and, you know, and then when they come out of <clears throat> slavery and they go to the promised land and the land is allocated out to the different tribes, 
like there's reasons that they do things. And I just, if, if we all keep this in mind, maybe we can make sense of it as we go. Right. Yeah. So in this, in all of this blessing time, Jacob, he, he, he promises here, he gives out the promise that the Israelite people will eventually return to the land of Canaan. Yes. Um, and he goes on and he to, like you, we were talking about, to bless all of the brothers. And the blessings he gives are kind of interesting because a lot of them aren't very complimentary here. <laughs> so it starts with Reuben. I'll just read my notes here that I've got. Reuben will not be successful because he slept with uh, Jacob's concubine. <laughs> Simeon yeah. and Levi are excluded from blessing because of their actions in Shechem. We read that whole story. Right. Judah will retain highest praise um, until Shiloh comes, and Shiloh is another term for Messiah. So, and as you read 11 and 12, this almost sounded to me like it could be uh, sort of a messianic prophecy where it talks talks about he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. Well, we know that wine and and grape juice are uh, used as um, uh, examples not examples. What's symbols. the word I'm looking for? S- symbols of Jesus's blood. So you know that seemed like a a, a, a bit of a messianic prophecy to me. Uh, Zebulun says Zebulun's going to live by the sea. Sounds like he's you know hit be a fisherman sort of thing. Issachar will become a band of slaves. Sounds like basically because he might just be lazy and because he uh, he likes to rest, he's just going to get taken advantage of. <laughs> um, and Eric, you already read. Dan shall judge his people. Now, he'll be a serpent and a viper. Like you said, that doesn't sound very good. Gad will eventually triumph over some kind of a military force, it seemed like. Uh, Asher is going to be a baker. Naphtali, sound like he might be a poet. Uh, Joseph is fruitful and blessed by God. He, uh, Let's see, there was a verse there that got me. Verse 24 Verse 24 says, his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Oh, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. That sounded like a reference to Jesus to me, too. The, one of those first times when we heard of Jesus referred to as a rock or a stone, that stone of Israel. Um, where was I? Oh, Benjamin, he's going to be a ravenous wolf. Now, that's an interesting... I wonder... We're going to end up reading a story about the tribe of Benjamin eventually where... Oh, yeah. They do... <laughs> they are... They end up being kind of... Not kind of, but the black sheep of, of the tribe. They are... They're basically they're pretty close to wiped out at mm-hmm. one point. And the rest of the tribes decide, oh, okay, it wouldn't be quite right if we just completely deleted the tribe of Benjamin and they end up doing again, what to us seems totally wrong and weird and awful and so on to preserve the tribe of Benjamin. But yeah, they're, they're, they are pretty darn close to stamped out. Yeah. So then verse 28, it says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own blessing. Those didn't all sound like blessings to me. <laughs> they also don't sound like something that Jacob came up with on his own. That sounds like prophecy. A lot of it. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, but it made me think back. And 
you know, what we had read as far as blessings, and usually it was just, you know, the, the firstborn got the blessing. You know, I wonder if this was kind of something from his past that said, you know, what I want to do is I want to give everyone a blessing. So in the end, maybe it doesn't become such a, you know, competitive, envious kind of thing where I'm going to bless everybody. You might not like the blessing that I give you, but I'm going to bless you nonetheless. Well, the chapter there kind of ends up with Jacob's death. And he says, he says, I'm to be gathered to my people. And he immediately, he immediately says what that means. He says, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. That's the cave that Abraham had bought. Mm Mm-hmm. But he says, I want, I'm going to be gathered to my people. That means he's going to be buried with his ancestors. It, it's I not... think that is absolutely significant yeah. in so many ways. Um, not only to the reference of, um, of his ancestors and, and this and that and the other, but that it's – he – Yes, I think it speaks to the state of the dead, that the dead are, I mean, they're they're there and they're dead until the second coming. I just happened to read also in Psalm 104 this morning, which is interesting because Psalm 105 and 106 go straight to the children of Israel in Egypt and exiting Egypt. It's incredible. It's just like, it's, just, it's a recap. But in uh, Psalms 104, um, 29, it says, when you hide your face, they're dismayed. When you take your breath away, they die and return to dust. This is about all living speak, all living things. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. And the footnote of spirit is breath. And you renew their face on the ground. It's, it's basically, it's, it goes back to the creation that we talked about, is that it's dust plus the breath of God equals a living soul. Mm-hmm. And when that breath is gone, you're dust. And that breath of God goes back to God. And I find it, that's not the part that I find especially awesome in this, is that he's, he's, as he describes it, gathered to my people. And it doesn't sound as awful and as terrible and as horrifying as like, oh no, it's the end of everything and it's the pit of darkness. And it's like, death isn't, isn't celebrated in the Bible, it's seen as a thing to be ultimately conquered in Revelation. But at this point, he's like, I'm going to be gathered to my people. Like, he's okay with that. He's he's going to rest with his people where he should be, and he's okay with that. And I find that to be, um, it, it, it's, 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 it's reassurance, because Jesus even talks about this. When he's talking about the Sadducees, and they give this thing like, okay, so there was this guy who was married, and he died, and then um, one of his brothers married another woman. It kind of goes back to the uh, the uh, Ur and Onan thing that we're talking about. And seven brothers end up marrying this woman, and like, okay, at the resurrection, which is ironic because the the uh, the Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. Whose wife will she be? And Jesus is like, you you guys don't get it. This is not about that. You don't know the power of God. But then Jesus, this is in Matthew 22, 29 to 33, he says that he speaks to, this is, I am the God of of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am the God of the living, which is interesting because he just died, 
right? Mm, and yeah. yet Jesus talks about God as the God of the living, and he cites these patriarchs as the fact that he's the God of the living. And to me, what that says, and I'm curious about you guys, is that to God, he has their breath, and he can add that back to the dust as he does in the resurrection. And to him, death is not a... Although we can't control it from this end, he has a light switch on that end that he can go, okay, my breath goes back and you're alive again. And that might be why, you know, that might be why um, Jesus and the Bible refers to death as a sleep. It's like we've separated these two elements. So now this part is separate from that part. And it's kind of like a, a stasis where the the little lump of dust on this end is no longer aware of what's going on because it's missing the part that makes it aware. But then when that breath is put back into it, well, then here you are here. You have your living soul again. And that could be, that could be, it's seen more as a suspension of state of being rather than like a permanent end to things, which is how we tend to see it. That's my point. That's my point. And when we see it as the permanent end to things, it creates a um, a fear on our end that we'll do any. I mean, Tracy, you work in the medical field, and my wife works in the medical field, and we see people today who will go to virtually any length to preserve life, no matter how sad and marginal that life might be, because what's seen as what death is seen to be is the end of everything. Like that's the very, 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 very end, and we can't have that. Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of people seem to just really they 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 really fear it, and like you said, they try to av- avoid it as much as they can. Which, of course, you know, who wants to die? Nobody wants to die. But at right. the end of the day, we all die. You know, and having the wait, idea wait, that what? no, no, that's that's terrible. We need to stop that. Sorry, Karen, you're gonna die. I think it's it's interesting that they deal with it in in a fairly matter-of-fact way. And the Egyptians, it's interesting, we've got embalming happening twice here Mm -hmm. at the very end. And the Egyptians are like the world's best at that. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, they don't, even the Egyptians didn't see it as the end of everything. It's fascinating. I mean... Well, you know, and and if you look at it, too, that while they did it, it wasn't done on a large scale, per se. The embalming was set aside for, you know, those highly revered and to go on, you know. But if you look later on, it was something that it was, you know, somewhat um, adapted by people of lower socioeconomical kind of stature in society. But. It was, and it's it's a fear that I think that there's no playbook and there's no, this is what to expect or anything like this. So I think it's just the great unknown. Right. And even the Bible doesn't give, I mean, people, a friend of mine on Facebook posted the question. He says, what, what did you, what did you believe that was in the Bible only later to find out that it's not in the Bible? That there's a whole lot. I mean, to Tracy's point, once death hits, it's kind of like. It's a, it's a, from, from our end, it's a one-way stargate, you know, it's just like you go through it and everybody on this end is like, oh, I wonder what's on that side. And we just, we, the Bible doesn't say, it just doesn't. It says, 
Nobody's supposed to reach out from the other side to you, and you're not supposed to reach out to them. It's forbidden. But, but, but I think too. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that it's it's kind of like this unknown. It's like God gets His breath back. We're, I mean, we're told that in in creation and in 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 um, in the Psalms, but we're given precious little detail as to what happens. Just like that's not for you. <laughs> it just leaves it right there. Well, I always like to look at you know Lazarus, the story of Lazarus, and you know when the people came and they said, Lazarus, tell us, tell us what, you know, what, what went on when you were dead, what you have to, you know, bring back. And Jesus says nothing. He brings back nothing because once you're dead, you know, nothing, you have no interaction with the living and the living have no interaction with you for the dead. know nothing. And it is, it's that big hanging question mark that we just don't know. And I think what we don't know, we tend to fear. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, I just, I, what I, what I read when I read this is that he was, he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. I don't see fear anywhere in that. No. We do today for sure. Mm-hmm. But I don't see that here. And I think that that's interesting. Now they make a big deal about it and the weeping and the, the big journey into back into Canaan for the burial. And I mean, man, it was a big deal. Session. Yeah, I, you know, maybe I'll throw a question out there a little bit, too. But I think, too, that maybe a little bit of the fear is the part of being alone, where especially in these times now, I'm, I've been reading a few things about, you know, people not being able to go into the hospital with their loved ones and that kind of thing, where it makes that hanging question mark a little bit more because you're going somewhere alone. Where, you know, based on, you know, the the faith that you have in in God you know, that shouldn't be a, a lonely journey. But I think a lot of people, when you see, when people pass in peace, they have their family there. Yeah. And ideally, you know, when we all think of death, it's like, you'd want your family there. You'd want somebody um, there to comfort you, you know, your children around you, your brothers, your sisters, the family that, you know, can make that journey a little bit easier or passing into another you know, in, into death a little bit easier. And I think this is kind of what he had. And maybe that's why he didn't have any fear because he had all his children around him. There was no loss where, you know, we can go back to a few chapters where it said when he found out that Joseph was alive, he was revived Yeah, because, you know, all his children were there with him. Now he had lost his wife, his wives, both of them at, at that point, or, but you know, his loss, his children were there. And maybe that's comforting in some kind of way. Well, and, and when, when, when Jacob was heading down to Egypt, part of God's promise to him was to tell him, like, you're going to do well there. You're going to be fine. And Joseph himself, Joseph himself will close your eyes. So there was this promise that, like, this child of yours that was missing for these years, he's going to be there with you to the day you die. That's a huge amount of human comfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, as far as like being gathered to your people or whatever, that whole kind of idea that I, I, the person who am dying, I want to know that even after I'm dead, even though I won't be aware of it, I am with my people. Right. And Joseph feels the same way. Joseph spent the majority of his life in Egypt. And even he said, take my body with you. When you guys leave here, take my body with you back to Canaan. Not was, because Canaan was their homeland, but because Canaan was where his people were. Right, 
Right. I was listening to a sermon this week about um, the whole concept of being a, uh, a stranger in a strange land, that they never made that their home. And what they're saying, too, like, like Christianity today is like we're putting all of our value in the possessions that we have here currently on this earth where we shouldn't be doing that. We should always view it as we're a stranger in a strange land, and this isn't our home. Yeah. Our home is ultimately heaven where, you know, we're laying, storing up our treasures and where we long to be and we're not getting caught up in things that are here. And I think this is the point being to that point is don't get comfortable there because that's not yours. I have something better for you or I have somewhere else that that will be your home. So don't get settled there. That's huge. I think that's a huge, 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 huge theme. And we're just about to, to wrap up Genesis and get into Exodus that um, we think about. Because I personally think that there is a whole lot of Exodus in Revelation. Mm-hmm. And I think that those two things, thinking about how Exodus informs Revelation and how they both inform where we are today, is a big deal. It's a big deal. Right. So let's look at the, the end of 50, huh? Some of that mm-hmm. amazing stuff. As um, yeah, the brothers. Jacob is dead. Yeah, the the after Jacob has died, the brothers are kind of worried that Joseph might uh, bring back up the old wounds and and uh, retaliate against them. And Joseph reassures them, "No, I'm absolutely not going to do that." And um, I think we talked about this. I think Eric, you mentioned this earlier. Verse twenty he says, "As for you." Uh, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. We've said before, I think maybe it was last week, probably there is no way in the world that Joseph would have ever probably chosen to get sold into slavery uh, as a way to bring about the promises of uh, uh, the covenant to Israel. But uh, we can see here that, well, you know what? It all worked out. It all worked out exactly the way God thought it would. And this is a time when nobody nobody got involved here to try to make this specific thing happen the way it had before, like, uh, you know, cheating your brother out of something or fooling your dad. Um, this time it just it happened the way that God always intended to, to happen, and it meant that Joseph had to get put into a into a difficult situation. Uh, but it came around that it was for a great, a hugely greater good. And Joseph probably had no concept. I can't imagine how he would have had any concept that his slavery would, would result in what it did. You know, I, I look at that and I, I'm going to kind of go just a little bit back to what you said earlier on when we first started that it's the idea of forgiveness and, and once again here, he tells you that um, I've forgiven you. Doesn't mean I've forgotten because the brothers didn't forget. It was still in the back of their minds that, you know what? There could be some repercussions from what we did now that our father's dead. And I think it goes back to what Matt was saying earlier on is, is that, you know what? Forgiveness is one of those kind of strange things where just because I've forgiven you doesn't necessarily mean that I've forgotten. Right. But I think mm-hmm. Joseph goes on to say, you know what, that's water under the bridge. And I look at this, look at 20, and I think to myself, it's farther on in the Bible, and I can't think of the text exactly, but it's 
finding somebody to stand in the gap. Yeah. And uh-huh. Joseph was that person. He, I think God knows the beginning from the end and said, you know what? This is the kind of character I need or I can build or I could use to stand in that gap right now between Canaan and famine and um, to a point of like salvation or perseverance uh, for um, Israel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I this, don't want to go ahead, Karen. Um, the, the, one of the things that kind of jumped out to me when I was reading the end of this chapter is this sort of, like we, we, you know, we read Job. Job was going through all of the stuff. The stuff that was right in front of him was felt intolerably hard. And, and he just had to plod through it based on acceptance and faith in God, not knowing what the point was, not knowing that there was a point, not knowing anything, but he had to take the next step and keep breathing. And, and Joseph, you know, if you had told Joseph when he was young, you know what, you're going to have a period of some awful years where this and this and this happened to you. But then because you've been placed in this position, you're going to have this rise in power and you're going to be able to do amazing work to save millions of people in the world. You know, if you had said that to him in advance, he would have been like, I'm in, I'm in, I'll do it. It's fine. Because when you know the outcome, like we were talking about with death, when you know the outcome, the fear is removed, right? So like anybody here ever expected a brain tumor in their family? Anybody Hmm. ever expected cancer? Anybody ever expected a hellacious divorce? Hmm. No. No. What do you do? You don't know the outcome. Yeah. Do you, you you do what? You grit your teeth and you take the next step. And that's exactly that's not easy. And that is, and that's the thing where I can look at these Bible stories and say, "Oh yeah, that's pretty cool." But then when it's like, if I really put myself there, in prison as Joseph was, I'm. Don't think I would have the courage that he had. Right. I mean, it's it's awesome that he did, but it it's it it, it gives me great pause as we um, as we're going to head into Exodus and the children of Israel. And it's easy to say, "Oh, why didn't you guys believe?" It's like, "Wow, wait a minute." It's, I mean, if I can put my situation into that same perspective and kind of overlay the two, I realize I behave no better. And yet we have God who's merciful and patient and forgiving of our short speaking of forgiving. I mean, it, to the point that I don't know if who said 18, we've talked about verse 20, but 19. But Joseph said to them, do not fear. I find this fascinating for am I in the place of God? Yeah. Where he doesn't even see this as a an option to not forgive. Right. He's like, this isn't even mine. It's kind of like I've had so much bigger. It's so much bigger than me. I've got a son and a daughter. And sometimes my son asks me to give me to give him something that is my daughter's. I'm like, okay, that's not mine to give you. (laughs) And he's like, but give it to me. I'm like, you don't understand. That is she has autonomy over that. And it's not mine to give. And Joseph views withholding forgiveness as that same thing. He's like, it is not mine to withhold. And that is super, super, super important because Jesus premises our forgiveness 
on our forgiveness of others. Forgive us our debts as we forgive. It's kind of like a, it's a pending. It's like, mm -hmm. if you do this, if you forgive, then I can forgive you. It's kind of like, if you don't forgive, it's not that I won't. It's just, I can't. It's a thing. It's you have to, you have to do that thing. And then I can do the thing that I do. And Joseph keeps it straight in his head that that is not his forgiveness to withhold. Because it's like we talked about how could I, in the, in the prodigal son story, how could I do this great thing and sin against God? Is yeah. this about God? It's not about him. And that's where I wish this would be one of our fundamental beliefs is that you have to forgive. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that should be a lot more prevalent probably than it is. And, but it's a lot more difficult. Yeah. It can be. A difficult yep. thing that you know it takes some i think i want to say almost spiritual maturity to get to that point to be able to say it is so much bigger than me and i have to i have to forgive mm -hmm. where and in, in in doing that you make room for the unknown you make room for god to do his work yes and in your own acceptance and taking your hands off that steering wheel you just sort of put the power in the situation back where it should be instead of trying to hold it for yourself as if it's your right. Absolutely. You yeah. know, I think too, and, and to go back and to kind of round out this chapter, I was looking at 26 right at the very end when he does pass away. And I'm thinking to myself that here is a leader. Number one, he's probably outlived any kind of Pharaoh and anybody up in the higher lawns of Egypt. <laughs> yeah. But it says, he was embalmed, which, like I said, it was reserved for, you know, more wealthy or the higher ups in society there in, e in Egyptian culture. But they embalmed him and they put him in a coffin in Egypt. End of story. For somebody that saves a country from famine, you expect some kind of big sarcophagus, some kind of big, you know, um, uh, burial thing with all his possessions and everything else. But this was just goes to reason right now that sticks with me in this portion is there was no big to do for this. He wasn't given the luxuries of Egypt and stuff like that, because to me, he still felt this was not his land. Put me in a coffin because ultimately you're going to move me. This isn't, this isn't my end here in Egypt. To me, it was like if that person saved that entire culture and, you know, part of the the first world or the known world at that time, yeah. that's sure not a huge procession to go out with. No, that's a, good, that's a very interesting point that he didn't say, like, yeah, build a big pile of rocks over me because I'm going to stay here forever. Yeah. You know, you know, look at the pyramids. The first one was done for almost, you know, out of a, a person that was well versed in medicine and everything else. The first pyramid at Dozier. That's exactly he could have had a pyramid. He saved the culture. He saved Egypt, but he didn't. It was like you know what? It, it was great. This was part of the plan, but I'm going to be buried with my my people. Yeah, take my bones because I'm not going to stay here. Well, I think that probably kind of wraps it up for us here for this book, uh, this chapter, and this book. Uh, it's just kind of left off with a promise that. God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So this is not this is not the end of the Israelite story. This is just the beginning of it. And so we're going to get into this uh, hard and heavy starting next week. We're going to start a new book, Book of Exodus. And well, heck, it's one of the uh, 
it's definitely one of the most famous stories of the Bible. I think just about everybody. I mean, you've seen probably everybody's probably seen some version of it in a movie, if nothing else. Uh, but we'll see how we'll see how that hold how that stands up to uh, the Bible, because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of differences from Scripture to uh, what happens on the screen. But um, so uh, be sure to tune in next week. We'll talk about that books of Exodus, book of Exodus, and I think uh, we'll 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 talk about probably chapters one through five next week. In the meantime, remember, you can contact us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. You can search for us on Facebook. Just look for Adventure Through the Bible. Um, as always, be sure you share this podcast. Please help us to get the word out to the people. This is our way of getting the word of God out to people, helping them to see that there is a logic to it, that there it makes sense, that uh, and that, that the common regular, regular Jill and Joe on the street can uh, really get something from it. And be sure to subscribe to us so that you make sure you get every episode. We're on Apple Podcasts, uh, we're on Spotify, we're on Google Podcasts, and a bunch of others. So be sure to look for us there. In the meantime, I hope you are blessed this week, and we will talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Stay safe.